You're listening to Season 3 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 41 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 3.13, Giants and Messiahs, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan. And hey, after we finish podcasting about Gundam, maybe we should go back to Moon Moon. And I'm Nina, new to Double Zeta and concerned about the possible future in which Moon Moon becomes a tourist destination. We, our minds were on the same page yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> I had to hold back a laugh there because he said after we finish podcasting about Gundam, <laughs> which is obviously a nonsense thing to say, we will never be done. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 419 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Arturo G, Stephen R, and Corinne E. This podcast would not be possible without your support. Remember, dear listeners, links to all of the different ways to support us and keep us ad-free are listed together on our website at GundamPodcast.com support. A heads up, uh, there will be no new episode two weeks from now on Saturday, November 28th. We will be taking that week off and we'll be back to our regular podcast schedule the following week. We'll be celebrating American-style Thanksgiving. Sort of. Kind of. MSB style. Yeah. <laughs> MSB style COVID year Thanksgiving, which is to say it will be the two of us alone in our apartment, <laughs> which is how everybody should do it this year. <laughs> Stay safe. Make it to next year's Thanksgiving. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta Episode 15, The Lost Colony Part 2, or Maboroshi no Koroni Ko. In lieu of research this week, we are joined by our anthropology consultant, Ali. But first, let's check out what's going on inside the offices of Radio Free Shangri-La. Good morning, folks. Who wants coffee? Oh, is that the mail? Anything good today? Let's see. Bill, 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 complaint, Bill, complaint. Ooh, Bill with a complaint attached. Another fan offering to marry Bethany. Straight into the garbage. Unsolicited pics of some guy's Rick Diaz. Ew. Final notice, we will shut off your electricity. Oh, it's a scam. We just want our Federation identification numbers. (laughs) Joke's on them, we already steal our electricity. Hey, does this coffee taste kind of funny to anyone else? Oh, you're just not used to the good stuff yet. I'm sure it will grow on you with time. Make sure you drink the whole thing, and soon you won't know how you were able to live without it. Now, was that it for mail? Uh, yeah. Oh, we got another letter addressed to Tom Thompson. Ooh. Do you think this studio used to be, like, a TNN affiliate? Huh. Weird. Anyway, I was just gonna throw it out. Oh, no need. I can take care of that for you. I'm actually headed past the garbage chute anyway. Now, don't forget to drink those fancy coffees I brought you. Thanks, Tim. 
Yeah, thanks, Mr. Timson. Now, let's see what's in this letter. Let's see. Dear Mr. Mr. Lieutenant Thompson, Thompson, I am, I am your, your biggest, biggest fan, fan in the, in the whole Earth sphere. I first heard you broadcasting the news several years ago when a damaged TNN satellite drifted close to my colony. Every day I would sneak into one room on the colony with a functioning radio receiver so that I could learn the truth about the world outside my isolated little colony. Everything I know about the Earth sphere, I learned by listening to you reporting the news. Eventually, the broadcasts ceased, perhaps because the satellite drifted out of range again, or perhaps because it was pulverized by the deadly debris field which surrounds my home. I thought that I would never hear your voice again, and I despaired. But then, by what I can only call the grace of God, a small space capsule drifted into range of my colony. When we opened it, we found that it contained nothing except a hand-cranked cassette player and a single autographed copy of your magnum opus, How to Get What You Want by Manipulating Trusting Young People, as read by the author himself on 26 cassette tapes or four CDs. Ever since that day, I have tried to live my life in accordance with the principles you laid out on those 26 reams of magnetic tape. Indeed, you could say that while the credulous rubes around me are trying to live their lives according to the rhythms of the moon, I've been regulating my life according to your guidance. As you so wisely put it, fulfilling my own desires is more important than anyone or anything, and the key to getting what I want is as simple as A, B, D, C. Always be deceiving. And what I want most of all is to meet you, Tom Thompson, my hero, at the annual Titan Con that was advertised on the back cover of your book. It may seem impossible for me to leave my suffocating little colony, but I've already set plans in motion that will, sooner or later, provide me with the means for my escape and my deliverance to Titan Con. Perhaps not this year or the next. But someday I will meet you and all my favorite Titans heroes whose deeds were so thrilling in your news broadcasts. Oh, how I long to someday shake the hands of invincible supermen like Lieutenant Jared Mesa and Captain Basque Holm. Or perhaps by then we'll be calling him Admiral Basque. Blessings of the Light Tribe upon you. Your devoted superfan, Roll. P.S. I don't know how long it will take this message to reach you, as I have placed it in a bottle and jettisoned it in the direction of what our most ancient records say is the closest colony. And now the recap for The Lost Colony Part 2. The obscuring curtain pulled away. The Light Tribe Prophet, Lady Sarasa, speaks to Judo face to face. 
She demands that he give his life to the Light Tribe, becoming her guide to the outside world so that she can spread the Light Tribe's teachings through the universe. But Judo still thinks she's Rasara, the rebel leader who organized his kidnapping earlier that same day. He grabs the Prophet, shaking her by the shoulders, slapping her and telling her to snap out of it. The guards immediately push him back, and Sarasa slaps him twice before announcing that he must not be their messiah after all. When she orders them all thrown in the dungeon, Bright concludes there's no reasoning with these people, and orders the Argama crew to fight back. They punch, kick, and tackle their way through the guards, and take off running. Rue is tripped by a thrown spear, Kiara is captured after she attacks a guard, and Bright and Emery are caught when Emery falls down the stairs and Bright throws himself over her to shield her from more projectiles. In the nearby woods, those who got away, Judo, El, and Ino, hide and plan. They can't go back to the Argama without retrieving the double Zeta, and it's back behind the temple. Before they can decide what to do, the guards find them again. The kids fend them off, but are completely outnumbered and in real trouble when suddenly the rebels arrive. Armed with slingshots and riding a speeding cart, Rosara and the other rebels call for Judo and his friends to jump on and hide in the covered portion of the cart. Inside, they're shocked to run into Mondo, who has fallen in with Rosara. It turns out she and Sarasa are sisters. And while Sarasa believes that with enough strength and power, she can spread the Light Tribe's teachings and eliminate war, Rosara worries that leaving the colony would put the Moon Moon way of life at risk. Besides, why should the warring factions on the outside listen to Sarasa? The cart arrives at its destination, the entrance for the old linear subway, with tunnels leading all over the colony, including to the temple. Although Rosara had planned on them walking there, Mondo is able to get the electricity back on and the subway car running again. In the temple itself, Sarasa orders a search for the escaped Argama crew members. She also decides to give the Argama to their new Axis allies, and Roll promises Goten that when Sarasa becomes leader of the cosmos, they will give Goten his own colony. For his own part, Goten is eager to take the colony and the Double Zeta without any losses, and plays along, tearfully proclaiming that the teachings of the Light Tribe have penetrated his heart. He sends Bicha to go disassemble the Double Zeta and load it into the Endra. Meanwhile, Rosara has managed to find where the guards and prisoners are, a close, torchlit passage on the way to the dungeon. Jumping out of hiding, Judo and friends make short work of the guards and untie all of the prisoners except Kiara. Their plan is for Bright, Emery, and Rue to take Kiara back to the Argama. Judo, El, and Ino will go to the Double Zeta, while Mondo helps Rosara awaken Katil. The massive statue behind the temple, covered in vegetation, is in fact a mobile suit. It hasn't moved since the Light Tribe renounced machines, and if it were to awaken, it would prove the Prophet wrong and cause the people to question her plans. Outside, they split up. El and Eno create a distraction, drawing as many guards away as they can so that Judo can climb up the scaffolding to the Double Zeta's cockpit. He's racing Bicha and dodging spears when a new group of guards arrive and follow him up only for the structure to suddenly collapse under the weight of so many people. As the beams fall away, Judo jumps, catching at the outside of the mobile suit and swinging himself into the cockpit. Before returning to the Argama, Judo sets out to save Lena. On seeing the Double Zeta launch, Goten orders the Endra to launch the Gaza Sea team. With the hatch open to let the Gaza Seas into the colony, Judo sees his opportunity 
and he rushes to get through before the hatch can close. He fires at the rapidly closing door, but his shot gets through, striking a mobile suit and sending it crashing back down the passageway and into the Endra, setting off a chain of explosions. Glemmy, having just arrived with a new Axis ship, sets out in his latest mobile suit, the Bauru. But he's not concerned with helping the Endra, only with making sure that Lena is alright. Otherwise, how will he catch Ru Luca? The Double Zeta fights the Gaza Seas that made it into the colony, while the people of Moon Moon run, convinced their god is angry with them. Sarasa tries to calm them and pleads with Goten to stop his mobile suits. The fighting is destroying Moon Moon. Goten is unmoved and tells her they cannot stop until they defeat the Double Zeta. They have the Ayug mobile suit outnumbered, and while Judo wrestles one Gaza Sea, another comes up behind him. It's ready to fire when instead, it is attacked by Katil. Mondo was finally able to get the old mobile suit moving again, and he joins the fight, freeing Judo to try once again to get Lena. He arrives at the Endra amid fire and smoke, just in time to see Glemmy carry an unconscious Lena to the cockpit of the Bawu. He slams the mobile suit into the wall of the hangar, but Glemmy points out that Judo can't attack now without risking hurting or killing Lena. Before Glemmy escapes back into space, he tells Judo that he'll accept a hostage in exchange. Rue for Lena. Back in the colony, Mondo and Katil have destroyed the last of the Gaza Seas. The moment Mondo gets out of the mobile suit, Bicha nabs him and drags him back to the Endra, along with the rest of the retreating Axis troops. The people of Moon Moon rejoice that their god protected them, and Rasara declares that they should not be afraid of machines. It's revealed that Roll, in his position as advisor, manipulated Sarasa into thinking they had to leave Moon Moon. Driven by his fear of being forgotten and a desire to get out into the wider world, Judo tries to make Roll see how lucky Moon Moon is to be forgotten. It's kept them safe while warring factions fight over every other populated part of space. As the Argama leaves, it's clear the crew envy Moon Moon its peace, its ignorance of the outside world. All right, Nina, you've now seen all of Moon Moon. What did you think of it? I liked it a lot. I thought it was great. Uh, you're probably not going to be surprised to hear that Moon Moon is uh, quite controversial in the Gundam fan community. And in fact, many people use Moon Moon as a kind of shorthand for everything that they think is wrong with Double Zeta. Interesting. So they don't like fun. <laughs> Got it. I guess I can understand why someone would be a little put off by Moon Moon, especially if it's somebody who came in really loving Zeta and looking for more of the same in double Zeta. But I really liked Moon Moon watching it with you. I suppose there are things about it that could seem silly. Mm -hmm. But I think most of its potential silliness comes from uh, if you think the Light Tribe is meant to be taken seriously. When I think it's very obvious that the Light Tribe is in many ways making fun of, <laughs> of these sort of back-to-nature, new-agey... Luddite, like, space Amish kind of... Right. I think the bulk of our talk back today is going to be dealing with certain uh, philosophical questions 
brought up by the show and how we think the show is addressing them and what position, if any, we think the show is taking. I mean, things like, I think feminism comes up again, uh, isolationism, technology and the pursuit thereof, uh, about the, the nature and uses of power, about proselytization, uh, you know, the co-optation of philosophies and political movements. Yeah, part of what makes Moon Moon so effective is actually the isolation of this story. Like it, you know, it's separated from a lot of what's going on outside. We're in this tiny little globe and we can view these larger issues that affect the Federation and Xeon and the whole Earth sphere in microcosm. We should start with power. Because power is, to my mind, what gets addressed the most directly and explicitly within the episode. Okay. People name it <laughs> over right. and over again. Well, both uh, both sisters, Sarasa and Rasara, specifically talk about power. And they're talking both about their own power uh, and the power of the, the opposite sister. You know, Rasara talks about her sister's desire to spread the Light Tribe's philosophy through the universe as the mistaken ideas of one who believes in power. And when she says that, my understanding of her meaning is that Sarasa believes <laughs> that her personal power will enable her to spread this teaching to other people. Mm -hmm. That she has enough power in and of herself to, to spread a philosophy to a bunch of people who do not currently know it or accept it. Do you think she could be meaning uh, that Sarasa believes not only in her own personal power as the prophet and in the like martial power of the light tribe and its warriors, but also the like power of the light tribe's philosophy to, you know, convince people and attract people power as in this case, like righteousness and correctness and uh, persuasion? Possibly. But I think it has to do more with institutional and like uh, potential for violence power. And, and we see a lot of inherent hypocrisy in this, right? She talks about how they need ships and they need mobile suits in order to spread their teaching. But at the same time, they're constantly demanding, oh, we can't use machines. The machines can't move mm -hmm. on Moon Moon. And yet any possibility of spreading this philosophy outside of their own you know, small, isolated community is dependent on machines. The philosophical underpinnings kind of fall apart once she gets to the proselytization stage. And in addition to and sort of parallel to that is the question of pacifism versus uh, violence and force as a kind of power, because they're talking about the benefit of the teachings of the Light Tribe for the world for the universe is an end to war, an end to violent conflict. But, but they need a show of force in order to convince other people to adopt? Well, not even that. that I mean, like... that's not even where I'm going with this. Oh. Like, <laughs> walk it back even a step further than that. How is their society organized? Their society has like a couple of priests at the top, but then the bulk of what we see of their government are these elite status warriors. Mm -hmm. like wearing armor, carrying spears. Their government is not peaceful. Uh, it's a government of power and violence. It is a, a government organized around the domination of the people via martial power. The most elevated people in their society, the only ones who are allowed to like go through the airlock and to experience technology are these elite chosen warriors. And for all of their rejections of machines, 
Uh, we even see stratification in the technology available to people because you have these elite guards with metal spears and bow and arrow, and then you have you know the rebels have slingshots with stones and mobile cart technology. Right, and even before it's revealed at the end that Roll, in fact, co-opted this whole movement and manipulated Sarasa for his own ends. We see that, you know, there's something rotten here when he uh, tells Goten, if Sarasa becomes the leader of the universe, we will give you a colony. <laughs> right. What she wants, like, you know, is it that she wants to bring an end to war or that she wants to become leader of the universe? Because I don't see those two things as being compatible in any way. <laughs> but this is what we've come to expect from leaders or wannabe leaders in Gundam. They talk a big game about making the world better, ending conflict, but really they are in it to take over, to aggrandize themselves, to rule by fiat and to give out uh, these, you know, prizes to their most loyal adherents. Like, this is what Haman is doing. It's what Sirocco did. It's what Minova does. It's, you know, it's the same rhetoric, but it's always a silken glove around an iron fist. I do believe there are people who amass personal power with the true intention of improving the lives of other people. Uh, but that's the problem with amassing personal power or with any, like, system of governance that, you know, endows one person or one very small group of people with so much power. She's not coming at this from the perspective of like, oh, we need to visit the colonies and talk to the people and get the people to understand why this is great and why they shouldn't have war. This is very top down, like we're going to force them <laughs> to mm -hmm. stop fighting war. And I truly believe that Sarasa really does think or has been made to think that spreading the teachings of the Light Tribe to the whole universe and becoming their leader would be good for people. And that's what makes it so dangerous. Once you reach that conclusion that what you are doing is for other people's good, for the good of the mass, then it becomes so easy to sacrifice what's one colony, right? If the benefit is that we end war for the entire Earth sphere, then isn't it just a small price to pay if we give gotten a colony? You know, in the same way that this presents a kind of paradox about violence as a means of spreading a peaceful message. It also presents a paradox about violence and about disarmament when it comes to even just protecting your own nonviolent community from incursion by other people. The episode ends with all of these outside characters musing about how lucky Moon Moon is to be forgotten, to be ignored, to not be a pawn in these massive sort of, you know, Earth sphere spanning conflicts. And we see Sarasa realize that, oh, the outside world is full of these mobile suits. And the minute that Moon Moon became just like a staging ground for that conflict, our whole colony was being destroyed and these other people did not care. And the only way we stopped them was with our own, <laughs> our own weapon. Yeah. See, this felt to me like a meditation on a modern, disarmed, pacifist Japan uh, and its place in a violent world. And the question of whether Japan like, can exist as a pacifist nation in a violent world. The position of the show seems to be, yes, but. <laughs> like, they can be pacifist, but only if they are not, if they do not involve themselves in other people's conflicts. If they are forgotten, if they disappear. Yeah, that they need to be left alone. 
for that to happen, and also that they potentially need to be ready to defend themselves from efforts to involve them mm -hmm. in outside conflicts. Yeah. In the show, Katl sort of is a stand-in for machine civilization as a whole, but I think it's also a metaphor for, for weapons, for armaments, for the very concept of a, a military. And so they've uh, left Katl to rust. They've abandoned Katl, and they've convinced themselves that Katl cannot move, will never move again, will never be necessary again, is powerless. And yet the show is saying that's a kind of a pleasant self-delusion. It's a lie. When the chips are down, they need Katl. And Katl, which has always been looming over them, that like the, thre right. the threat has never been forgotten. It's always there and it comes to life again. Well, and, and here's the, the thing, right? There is an impression that previous generations of the Light Tribe understood this. Because they could have disassembled Katl. They could have destroyed Katl, and they didn't. Yeah, they just turned it off. Like the linear car in was, the subway. Exactly. The fact that Mondo has such an easy time turning it back on again and getting it working again means they didn't destroy it. They just turned it off and decided not to use it. And presumably didn't teach their children how to turn it back on. That's sort of the key point here. A lot of people look at this and they say, this is so goofy, how could this happen in such a short period of time? But if you had a community that had reached a consensus that they were going to give up technology and they were completely isolated and they just didn't teach their children about these things and they didn't teach them how to use these things, that knowledge would die out very quickly. And vis-a-vis -vis technology, the position of the show uh, is quite clear that Sarasa's total rejection of technology is not quite correct, but also that the contemporary absorption with technology and convenience is also not correct. Yeah, that's a fantastic read. I think you get this most strongly from Rasara with the lantern. Yeah, the, the Rasara lantern bit is quite explicit where they say, oh, wouldn't a, wouldn't a flashlight be more convenient? And she's like, well, but the lantern also tells me if there's poison gas in the air. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I think just her character in general and the fact that uh, she's rather fascinated by machines. She doesn't think machines are bad. She thinks that the way in which they've structured their lives to be a bit slower is as good as ideal, that the pace of life and, and the way that they live on Moon Moon is good. But she's not afraid of machines. She doesn't think machines are evil in and of themselves. It's very much conscious use and adoption of technology contrasted with the you know, admittedly much easier total rejection or constant pursuit of mm -hmm. technological advancement. And it's interesting that Rasara is the only character in this arc who actually tells us anything about Moon Moon's actual belief system, that it's about synchronizing the rhythms of your life to the waxing and waning light of the moon. The Light Tribe people who are the most ardent proponents of this religious practice uh, only ever talk about spreading it and sort of material concerns. The fact that the ostensible leaders of both the, the Light Tribe itself and this rebel group are women would seem to point to a certain amount of feminism, a certain amount of uh, power for women. But Roll is in fact very like Sirocco. He uses his ability to manipulate a woman who is ostensibly in power 
to wield power himself, but with this sort of plausible deniability. I am so glad you made that connection because I want to expand on that a little bit. Oh, one really quick. The reason I thought of feminism is you brought up the moon, and I feel like often in New Age religions, uh, the moon is tied to femininity. Well, as you remember, when we looked at the uh, big icon in Minerva's throne room on the Guadan, if I remember correctly, it was a woman and the moon. Yes. So that's a symbol they are familiar with using and have used before. But uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you made that connection because this set up with a sort of young, charismatic woman as the nominal leader of a group, a group that is almost exclusively male except for that nominal leader, and a group in which actual power is held by an advisor, uh, usually a man, usually older, who is in fact manipulating the nominal leader. This setup, which I've just described, which covers uh, the light tribe of Moon Moon and what Sirocco was trying to set up, also describes Axis Zeon. Because in that case, you have an almost exclusively male organization with two women at the top, uh, Minova, who is the nominal leader and is being controlled by the advisor Haman. And then Haman herself is another like woman at the top of a huge pyramid that is all men. So this is a recurring theme and maybe even rising to the level of an obsession for Gundam. And I would say that Gundam doesn't believe that women can't hold power because we see Rasara leading the rebels. Mm -hmm. But I I would say that Gundam believes women are often allowed the appearance of power because it suits someone else's ends. Uh, you know, it brings us back to sort of co-optation of philosophies, which brings us back around to power again. Because what was the point of all this? This old man uh, feels stifled in his small community and... Uh, is afraid of being forgotten by history. What an astonishingly selfish motive for Roll. Yeah, this is revealed at the very end in a scene that at first when I watched it, it felt a little tacked on. It felt a little bit like a Scooby-Doo ending where at the end they pull the mask <laughs> off of the monster and they reveal that it was actually old man Roll all along. But on subsequent viewings, I think this scene is just absolutely crucial to understanding the messages of Moon Moon, and I'm really glad they included it. Because Roll makes such a big point, right, of his age, and of his personal feelings, and how he feels like he didn't do anything wrong. Even though he was willing to sacrifice countless lives just for his own gratification. And if you've ever wanted a real crystallization of Gundam's idea that old people are the enemy, well, here it is. I had a very funny realization towards the end of this episode, and it's that, in fact, Judo was their messiah. Huh. But he didn't lead them out into the world to spread their teachings. He arrived to show them why they need to be <laughs> uh, forgotten. It's a very pro-isolationist episode. Yeah, I, I, I see what you mean. While I think it does go a long way to show the appeals of isolationism. I also think it makes the point that isolationism is ultimately impossible, that it's a, a delusion. That it will be undermined from within or without or both. Another way that I think this episode undermines its apparent message about the benefits of isolationism is by showing how unjust, dishonest power structures can thrive and endure in isolated communities and then can be destroyed by exposure to the outside world. 
it really does seem that Judo arrived just in time to show the light tribe, to show the people on Moon Moon uh, that they should not be entangling themselves in this outer conflict, that they should not be exposing themselves. I mean, what? Yeah, they definitely should not be exposing themselves. Um, (laughs) It has two meanings. But what a disaster it would have been for the Light Tribe if just the Endra had shown up. Yep. Gotten is a a shameless and very skilled actor. Gotten really distinguishes himself in these last couple of episodes. Obviously, we loved Gotten before because he's such a great foil for Mashima and Kara. But Gotten is like 120% Gotten in Moon Moon and it's great. Also, really good character turns from uh, Bicha and Mondo. But before we talk about them, I want to say one or two more things about Judo in the end there. Because he has two really revealing lines in that final scene with Roll. One of which is when he's talking to Roll and he basically says, Fighting sucks, man. Ever since we started fighting, all of these really bad things have happened to us. You have a good thing going here. Do not mess it up. Roll doesn't understand him uh but it's important because i think this reveals a lot about the messaging of the episode of like this thing that moon moon has managed to achieve is maybe not something that you could do intentionally it's maybe not something you could cultivate if you wanted to stay out of conflicts but when you have it you have to be able to appreciate it and it's saying that maybe the solution to these big conflicts could be just staying out of it that if that's a thing you can do then maybe you should And the kids on the Argama are already trapped in it, but there's a desire uh, to escape from it, to say, to heck with the Federation and Xeon, we just want to disappear into obscurity. And that's kind of what Judo says again at the end, when the Argama has left, and he says, maybe we'll return to Moon Moon after we find my sister. He's thinking about escape. I mean, that scene at the end, almost everyone's comments express a kind of envy for the peacefulness that Moon Moon is privileged to experience. But as you were describing Judo's conversation with Roll, I realized it is an inversion of a scene that we get many times in Gundam and in other science fiction and in fantasy and in in all kinds of different fiction that deals with this, where it's usually adults who are trying to convince young people, we know war looks exciting and you want to be a hero, and you you know want to fight the good fight, but actually it's hell, and you shouldn't be in a hurry to get involved in this. And in some ways, this inversion is, if not more true than just as true, because who are the people who generally involve a society in war? Not kids. Kids aren't making that decision. Adults are. <laughs> Mostly old men. And so... While, yes, the conversation of convincing a young man that he shouldn't be in a hurry to go out on a battlefield is is true, is real, uh, so is, you know, the young people whose lives are on the line trying to convince old men not to involve mm-hmm. their society mm-hmm. in war. And the episode manages to do all of that all of that big, heavy-lifting, deep, thematic meaning stuff. And it manages to be really funny, too. There are hysterical bits in this episode. I cackled so loud when Eno tells Mondo, we don't like you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, that bit with with Judo and Elle and then Eno each, like, reminding, like, sticking the fork in Mondo to just be like, we haven't forgotten what you did. 
Uh, it's so good. But the fact that in spite of everything, they're all still friends, which also gets hammered home. You know, Mondo tells them, well, but I did save you. You can't be too mad at me because I did save you. <laughs> Uh, and Judo does appreciate Mondo's skill with technology. He's like, that's our Mondo fixing stuff that seems like it's impossible. Uh, plus, <laughs> Judo's comment to Elle that he can't flirt with her because he doesn't want to pick a fight with Bicha. <laughs> yeah, this episode did so much to establish characterization for Bicha and Mondo, who until now have just been, you know, the traitors. But they feel much more like real kids now. I appreciate it a lot. Mondo's reply to all of them sticking the fork in him, as you put it, uh, is like, well, we did start as junk dealers. He's kind of pointing out to them that in a lot of ways, they're the ones who've changed, not him and mm -hmm. Bicha. He and Bicha are more or less who they always were. <laughs> and their eventual reconciliation, a sort of temporary reconciliation because Bicha drags Mondo back to Axis with him, kind of mirrors that between Sarasa and Rasara. There's been a big conflict in the past. Rasara was exiled. We know that they have sharp differences of opinion, and yet they're still sisters. At the end of the episode, they're still like standing together and talking like sisters. You really thought that Mondo was going to stay on Moon Moon, didn't you? I wondered if they might do that. I feel like that's a thing that happens in stories. Somewhere along the way, one of one of the group falls in love and decides, oh, I'm going to hang back, guys. My adventuring days are done. Mm -hmm. And he was very taken with Rosara. Yeah, I think if Bicha had not collared him and dragged him off, he might actually have stayed. And Rosara liked him. <laughs> She's going to need somebody to fix technology. Maybe that's his post-war story. <laughs> the other thing that struck me several times in this episode, and part of this is you know, from the perspective of whoever storyboarded it and, and animated it, but part of its, you know, characterization too, obviously. But these kids are really good fighters. Not just Scrappy. Elle catches a spearhead out of the air. Though she is very surprised that that happened. She, like, closes her eyes and catches it automatically. And then is like, huh? But we see a lot of great tackles, kicks, punches, stone throwing. But like you said, it is a characterization in the animation. It's different from the way Camille fought, right? Camille had a very precise, clearly well-trained, classical karate-style fighting. These kids, however, are junkyard scrappers. They look like street brawlers <laughs> in the best possible way. Oh, yeah. It would seem that uh, the bright Emery sexual tension is going to continue to be a thing. Even though he told her that he has a wife? Well, but he brings up his wife because, I mean, he's thrown himself on top of her to protect her from spears, and they're right up on top of each other. He he knows what's going on, or he <laughs> wouldn't have felt the need to bring up mm -hmm. that he's married. Clearly, everybody knows what's going on because of the way Judo teases him later when he's tied to Emery, and Judo is like, are you sure you want me to untie you? And on top of this episode, more or less solidifying that that's going to continue to be a thing, there's also a definite contrast between Bright and all the youngsters, right? Well, Bright and Emery and the youngsters. I don't think Emery really fights at all. Uh, Bright just sort of like tackles some spears to the ground and then runs. Judo yells at Emery to open her skirt. And I think what he means is like, if it's a wrap skirt, like literally open it, but like tear it, take it off. She cannot run down that staircase in a pencil skirt. Every other woman who's there is wearing at least leggings and can just book it. 
Emery can't. So neither Bright or Emery as particularly good fighters or, or prepared for this kind of thing or scrappy in the same way that the kids are scrappy. Another part of this episode that was so funny, but again, is a good bit of characterization, is when Bright calls out to the kids, don't wait for us, and then it's like, oh, they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> they did not for a second wait for us. <laughs> the kids know better. It is absolutely delightful to see Elle getting one over on Rue for once. For once? I mean, she's already a mobile suit pilot. To be fair, L goads Rue, right? Oh, oh, yeah. These are the perfect moments to make sure people owe you one. Well, they're always, I mean, their whole relationship is, at least when Suzuki is writing the episode, about this rivalry between the two of them, uh, about, like, establishing dominance as who gets to be the girl in the group. But I just, it's, it's delightful to see them together, and I love their dynamic. Also, not to be ignored, there is a difference in the way Glemmy's interest in Lena is portrayed in this episode versus in Little Sister prior. Glemmy is much more explicit that his interest in Lena is only as a hostage so that he can get his hands on Rue, which is also creepy, but in a different way. There's less of the grooming aspect, and he sees her more as just a disposable resource. And that's expressed not only through his dialogue, but also in the way he interacts with her body. Because in Little Sister, there are two incidents where Glemmy is carrying Lena. And in both of them, it's the like the bridal carry or the princess carry mm -hmm. where he's like got one arm under her legs. He's got one arm behind her back. He's like she's... scooped her up mm -hmm. in this way. And that posture, that method of carrying has a lot of uh, implications. Mm -hmm. As opposed to in this episode where she has been knocked unconscious by some explosion or other. Uh, and because of the low gravity and her being small, he's just kind of got her under one arm yeah she's limp uh and he's carrying her under an arm like a sack of potatoes is she unconscious because they couldn't get her voice actress this week entirely possible oh speaking of voice actors the two moon sisters sarasa and rasara share a voice actor which probably makes it a little more believable that judo would mistake one for the other i mean their makeup and jewelry is very different i don't know how he could get confused about that i understand how he could get confused about that we always like to point out the inclusion of animals <laughs> in the episodes. We got squirrels. We got some beautiful cranes. We got that cricket that really <laughs> surprises Judo in the tall grass. <laughs> oh, ju sorry. I'm, I have to say, Judo and everyone sneaking through the tall grass. Just made me think of Pokemon. It's so well done. It's really, <laughs> it's really funny animation. The grass is rustling. You know, Double Zeta often does not like look as shiny and fancy as Zeta did. They have fewer of the glamour shots. Often the shadows are not as stark. The lines are not as sharp. But the movement is so good and so much better than in Zeta. There was one scene that I found stunningly beautiful in this episode, and that's when the Zeta takes off and Elle and Eno are tied up but are standing in the field and all the guards are running away and the plants and the grass are whipping past and their hair is moving and their clothes are moving and it's just so beautifully <laughs> animated. I just love that. I mean, it can't be more than a few seconds. It's not a long scene, but mm -hmm. it's gorgeous. So if anybody out there knows which animator animated that particular cut, drop us a line. We would love to know. Stonehenge shows up again, although this time in one of the shots, they've got the uh, lintel pieces. And so definitely Stonehenge. More explicitly Stonehenge rather than generic stone circle. Yep. 
I noticed in the throne room, there's a sculpture which kind of looks like a tree with like things that branch off at, um, I want to say at like a 45 degree angle and then go straight up again, kind of like branches. But what this also looks like is the Shichishito, which the sword. is, yeah, the seven branched <laughs> sword, which is an artifact out of Japanese history. It's like a 1700 year old sword that was given to a ruler in Yamato, Japan by a, uh, a king in one of the kingdoms that is now Korea. This is, sword is an artifact of, of great antiquity and significance. Uh, and so it's been added, I think, to the mix of different religious and cultural artifacts that have been uh, mushed together to create Moon Moon Society. We talked a lot about power in this episode. You, know, you brought up how these uh, abusive systems can persist in isolation just as well as they can in the wider world and sometimes more. It would seem that the antidote for Gundam's skepticism of these power structures would be something more communal, like like an anarchist commune kind of thing, where you know people do things by committee and they're you don't have this very hierarchical structure. But we've yet to really see that. I mean, I feel like the closest we got was the white base. Yeah. And even that. I really think the white base (laughs) at its best basically functioned as an anarchist commune. Like everybody in the role that best suited them. But I wonder if we're ever going to get other glimpses of different versions of that and perhaps uh, less violent, (laughs) less military centered (laughs) versions of that. I think so. I think that's definitely one of the things that Gundam seems to be saying. I think about this every time I think about how the protagonists, the pilots, tend to uh, take that role for themselves. They're not assigned to it. They steal the Gundam. They steal the whatever mobile suit they're taking out. And it's the act of taking the mobile suit of their own volition and against like regulations, against the rules, against the desires of the official power structure that is so important because they are taking that power on themselves and creating their own separate parallel community as a way of resisting those power structures. And then they get co-opted. You know, it happens even to the best dumb space boys. And now our discussion with anthropology consultant, Allie. So I am Allie. Um, I am an occasional zero context guest host. If you're, a, if you're a patron of MSB, you've probably heard Allie's voice before on one of our many delightful zero context Gundam episodes where we either watch standalone Gundam projects like NT or F91 or look at uh, mobile suits from the Mobile Suit Variations series and get Allie to give her, uh, let's say, totally uninformed opinions about them. Exactly. And this time I have just a little bit of context. (laughs) Yes. Now we want an informed opinion from you. This is the first time Allie will be joining us on the regular podcast, I believe. It's my first time and here not to give my opinion on the phallic nature of mobile suits, Um, but here repping my background, having studied anthropology at NYU, all about those, you know, anthropologists coming in, figured out myths. (laughs) Great. Well, I would say that the colony of Moon Moon desperately needs the services of an anthropologist just to help us understand what's going on um, and where we think this sort of story concept that appears in Moon Moon and uh, and appears in a lot of other sci-fi might have come from. Yeah. And so in, in watching the episode, I really was interested to see this 
sort of myth that we see crop up, you know, again and again, both in pop culture and, you know, anthropologists even have held on to this for a long time. Anthropologists love um, this myth of the colonizer god, which is a little bit confusing for Gundam because, you know, the people who are kind of substituted for natives here are in and of themselves colonists. Uh, mm-hmm. But we'll, <laughs> we'll simplify that a little bit for the sake of this discussion. Um, but yeah, this, I think, really goes back to early stories that I think probably all of us have heard in some form or another of, you know, for example, Cortez showing up, uh, meeting the Aztecs, and they immediately mistake this conquistador for a white god. They have this myth, Quetzalcoatl, he is going to come back at a specific day, and the story goes that Cortez shows up on that specific day, and lo and behold, they revere him as a god, and that allows him, you know, access to their society, access to conquer. Um, and that's that's the story. It's a story that, you know, imperial society has really loved because it gave them authority to conquer. Um, and it's a story that crops up again and again. We see it in Hawaii with Captain Cook, you know, supposedly being mistaken for the god Lono. And uh, it's kind of just not true. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, even aside from the sort of practical advantage that it gives you a certain amount of authority to be a god, I would imagine. Um, It also just like, it's very flattering to say, look at these fruits of European civilization, like uh, guns, horses, giant ships, shiny armor. If a person were to see these things, why they would think that whoever owned them must be a god. Exactly. And it was really interesting to see that um, relationship to technology was explicitly called out in, you know, these episodes in the Gundam world of, you know, the people of Moon Moon have rejected technology. So they had they had previously seen this technology and just rejected it. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, the reality of most, you know, relationships between especially European colonizers and indigenous people, you know, the value of technology was was pretty well recognized. The actual relationships between colonizers and indigenous people was an immediate trade relationship, right? So I see that you are rolling up to my home with a huge (laughs) ship and some guns and some spears um, with this great armor in the case of the Spanish. How about we exchange that so you're not totally overwhelming me was the actual relationship in most cases. But the the story that uh, gets trotted out in pop culture a lot is that the uh, native people were just mystified and immediately took it as magic. You know, Gundam, while these episodes do establish Moon Moon as sort of a neo-Luddite Amish community that's abandoned technology intentionally, mm-hmm. at the same time, they do want the technology. They want the ships because they want to make use of them. And they literally worship a defunct technology, the the Katal god. Exactly. And I think it's it's really interesting to see how the twin sisters, whose names I am going to swap back and forth, so apologies <laughs> yep. in advance. But so they sort of you know, they represent two sides of this approach, right? So you have Sarasa, who is the, I believe, the, um, I forget what they call her, the pontiff, the the you know, high priestess, yeah. who is, you know, not totally a, a conquering queen, but that's, she's out there to spread the message to almost go and be a missionary in and of herself to all of outer space about Moon Moon's philosophies. And then you have her sister, Rasara, who is, again, playing into these um, sort of archetypes that we see again and again in pop culture of what's called like the noble savage stereotype of I've rejected technology 
And this has given me a deeper understanding of the world. And I don't want any of the benefits that come with, you know, advancing society or going along with this technology. Um, I have this sort of heightened spiritual connection without it. Mm -hmm. And so they really are playing two sides of that coin that we, we do often see as well in depictions of indigenous people, which again is confusing because they're not actually indigenous, but that's the clear um, analogy that's happening. I don't know if there is precedent for this, but also that she seems to understand contact with the outside world would threaten their society. Uh, and I, I do wonder if you know of any parallels to that in our real earth history of peoples who encountering imperial forces or colonial forces were like, oh no, <laughs> that's it for our way of life. <laughs> There's definitely cases of that. There's kind of a fight or flight response. And I can't think of any like geographic areas in particular, but you know, in individual accounts, you see either let's run up and sort of meet and try to trade or interact with whoever just showed up or let's get the hell out of here. Um, I can't think of any off the top of my head that are an exact, you know, community that fully shut off um, aside from Japan, but that's a little bit different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Though I can think of a lot of movements during the height of the colonial imperial period that while not entirely successful were uh, launched with the aim of expelling the foreigners and strengthening the nation. The Boxer Rebellion, for instance, but also mm -hmm. smaller scale and less uh, famous ones all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say, though, that it's it's interesting because I think a lot of those don't necessarily take the approach of let's reject everything that this invading culture has brought us. A lot of those do take, you know, the stance of let's take whatever technology they've brought mm -hmm. and also make them leave. <laughs> well, like you mentioned with the, the white god myth, um, you know, often the stories about these are not exactly accurate, but they do have a, a special currency within the Euro-American mindset. Stories about like during the Meiji Restoration, when there were uprisings by groups of samurai who were still loyal to the Bakufu, um, to the military government, they used guns because samurai have been using guns for centuries. But in Western versions of these stories, like Tom Cruise's The Last Samurai or the book on which it was based, you get this like noble savage myth of these honorable warriors going back to the sword and giving up modern weapons and you know, things like that. Exactly. And it's, you know, even in contemporary society, when we think about, you know, an indigenous culture or even when we think about uh Japan or China or any, you know, major power, major non-Western power, and we think about, you know, traditional aspects of those cultures, uh, we think about them as frozen in time. Uh, they're not a they're not a culture that wants advancement or can accept, you know, change or can, you know, really grow and develop and embrace new technologies because the Eurocentric Western mindset wants to kind of own those things. Um, so when we think about, you know, indigenous cultures, even though there are plenty of indigenous people who still exist and have continued to grow and evolve as cultures, we think about them as frozen in time. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mention it that way, because I just saw this come up in some online discussions about uh, sort of Western you know, Japanophiles or weebs, <laughs> depending on which term you prefer, <laughs> and their perception of the sort of uh, political climate of Japan and their perception of Japanese people's engagement with politics. Uh, 
And somebody I know does a lot of translation was commenting that a lot of these uh, perceptions seem very tied to this idea of Japan as like very immutable culturally, mm-hmm. <laughs> of the culture as something very solid and unchanging, uh, which is weird when you think about how quickly all cultures change anymore. I've seen this come up a lot in conversations, um, you know, around human rights, actually, and and human rights uh, rhetoric, because there's this school of thought in anthropology of human rights as sort of the new religion and sort of a new foundation for imperialism in a lot of ways. Mm. You know, the motivating factor for a lot of European imperialism was religion, right? Let's go out, spread Christianity, convert as many people as we can and sort of show people the way white man's burden, right? And in a lot of ways, you know, people have moved away from that idea and are very accepting of the fact that there are many religions and people can, you know, worship however they choose. But the way that that plays out with human rights is actually not so accepted. So Mm -hmm. the idea of, um, you know, human rights as this new global guiding path for thinking that all other cultures need to be held to um, is in a lot of ways kind of a new imperialism. It's funny that you mentioned that because when uh, we first watched these episodes and I was looking around for research topics, I looked into the uh, the light tribe a little bit. And one thing that that particular name led me to was the communist terrorist group Shining Path. And one of their big things is a rejection of the concept of human rights as being essentially a tool of bourgeois imperial power and especially American imperial power. In a lot of ways, it's religion without God, right? It's a moral framework for how you think the world should be and how people should treat each other. Totally. Exactly. And it's it's as an American, it's kind of uncomfortable to think that way, right? Of like, what do you mean? People could reject human rights, could reject the basis of, you know, other people's right to exist the way they want. Um, But, you know, back in the day, imperialists and colonizers weren't spreading Christianity just, you know, for kicks. They surely felt the same way. So I think that's a a difficult (laughs) introspection on society. Absolutely. And comes back around to comments you'll see from a lot of activists now that while the international community can certainly uh, pressure different governments and societies to adopt certain changes, a lot of that change has to be internal. It can't be externally imposed, or at least it's not as long lasting <laughs> it's when it's uh, when there are attempts to externally impose it or is widely adopted. Yeah, definitely. The discussion of human rights um, just made me think about the ending to the second episode and how the central conflict within the episodes is really all gets boiled down to roles like personal desire for freedom and aggrandizement and the right to do what he wants and leave the colony and live his life the way he pleases versus the like civilization shattering or at least civilization shaking effects of this desire of his. Yeah, that part was really interesting to me. That sort of behind this whole plot that was happening was there actually just this single man's desire, um, this, I guess, selfish desire to not be forgotten. Um, I don't really know what to make of that, but I think it's really interesting in, you know, relation to this idea of remaining um, sort of frozen in time, unchanged, this peaceful society, and that being equated with being forgotten. Mm hmm. 
there's something there. I don't quite know what it is, but there's something there. It made me think of a lot of narratives of sort of great men in history and how many of these men who've held, you know, political or military power throughout the ages did really harmful things out of a desire for fame and mm. renown. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's also something sort of lurking there with the fact that it is this sort of older man mm -hmm. who is having that desire. And then you have these two young women who, while misguided in one way or another, seem to have very, you know, pure intentions mm -hmm. one way or another. Mm -hmm. um, I think the show in general uh, has a lot of negative things to say about older people, adults manipulating and exploiting children. And this is not the first time that we've brushed up against the idea of an older man taking advantage of younger, more innocent women. But of course, you wouldn't know about that because you haven't watched those episodes. <laughs> well, listen, I've seen enough anime to know that, you know, adults are evil. So. <laughs> I think the bit with role at the end there also, I mean, it says some very cynical things about religion. I think it might also be setting up a conflict between uh, globalism and isolationism. Well, and globalism in the context of a world at war as well, or a, a universe at war <laughs> as it is. Um, you know, isolationism here is not just, you know, not allowing outside influence, not allowing, you know, outside culture to pollute their own beliefs, but to remain hidden from conflict. And, you know, we started talking about this at the very beginning, but when you get all the way down the line from the myth of the white god to all of these other colonizer myths, the area where Japan really might have come into contact with that idea is in World War II cargo cults, right? So around the time of World War II, right when it was ending, when, you know, the U.S. entered the Pacific, um, you had these smaller, some say uncontacted, but really they had already had some missionaries, but relatively isolated indigenous cultures in Melanesia that had contact with Japan for the first time as all of these supplies were being dropped by airplane to one side of the conflict or another. Mm. Um, and all that these cultures really knew of the conflict was that they were getting huge crates of supplies, right? <laughs> so yeah. for them, it was kind of a great blessing. Um, mm. Although I know some individual members of those communities would have been sort of recruited into one army or the other. I know the Allied forces had a lot of uh, coast watchers who made use of indigenous people uh, as as uh, sort of members of that operation. And I believe the Japanese army like recruited soldiers from Melanesia. Yes, yeah, so they definitely did. And, you know, relationships between Japan specifically in these places um, really did deteriorate over uh, a few years mm -hmm. uh, as pretty much all areas in the Pacific and Japan's relationships did mm -hmm. um, at that time. Uh, but, you know, initially, because they were not directly involved in the conflict, you had, yeah, coast watchers, you had some um, soldiers who were recruited basically in exchange for supplies for goods. Mm. Uh, and it was initially fairly peaceful. A lot of these places, especially in um, Vanuatu, which is where a lot of the stories come out of, had this culture of you know, resource sharing, essentially gift giving, and the more resources you were able to share, the higher your standing in that society was. Mm. And so 
for these unknown powers to come in and have huge crates of food, Mm -hmm. for example, uh, that gave them basically a lot of clout to just come in and start, you know, making trade agreements, bartering with people, getting some help from the locals in terms of in the conflict itself. But for the most part, these people were relatively passive and just sort of enjoying some benefits of um, the incoming cargo right up until... As you said, they start getting a little bit more involved in the conflict and then maybe it's better to be left alone. So it's interesting to me that that idea of sort of colonial or foreign contact with native people might have made its way to Japan more so through that um, Mm. end of the war cargo cult interaction. Can you explain a little bit more about what a cargo cult is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there are a lot of stories um, about cargo cults. Most of them come out of Melanesia, like I said, around World War II. Uh, but a lot of the stories have really been blown out of proportion. So just like probably the Hawaiians did not literally think that Captain Cook was their god, um, there are many fewer cargo cults than are actually discussed. And the ones that did exist existed for a very brief period of time. So I'll give that disclaimer right at the top. Um, but essentially, like I said, there a lot of these cultures placed a really significant emphasis on resource sharing and the ability to you know, give gifts and provide for others in the community. So when there started being all of these cargo drops for um, both the US and Japanese soldiers that were just landing on their islands and the soldiers that came along with them, those foreign soldiers were initially given a lot of clout. Um, And so there started to be some communities, some very small cults that, and I say cult not as a pejorative, but just as the the common term for a fringe Mm -hmm. religion, basically. you know, some cults started to pop up that would adopt some of the, you know, what they were interpreting as ritual around receiving these goods. Mm. So the common thing that you hear talked about is constructing like planes and fake guns out of bamboo, um, people painting themselves basically like with USA across the chest as if it was a uniform uh, and performing rituals that basically look like military drills. So creating a sort of religious exercise behind the military actions they were seeing Mm -hmm. with the idea that that would then summon more supplies. So this reminds me very strongly of the research Nina did about uh, Skinner. Oh, and the pigeon behavior. Yeah, his work with pigeon behavior and the idea of the Skinner box, where if a reward is distributed randomly, then these birds in the box would start doing whatever behaviors they had done just before getting the reward in a ritual kind of way in the hope of triggering future rewards. Yeah. And that's often the way that it's, you know, it's talked about in literature and especially in anthropological texts of the time, although contemporary anthropologists, basically <laughs> their whole job is to apologize for everything every <laughs> earlier anthropologist did. Um, uh, with good reason. Uh, and one of the things is, you know, it seems random to an outside observer, you know, to an American looking at that, it's, oh, well, they're just doing that because they saw somebody in a military uniform. So how silly to think that then painting themselves like they're wearing a uniform would summon more goods in a in a drop that hasn't happened in years. But in actuality, those were tied back to much earlier belief systems that the people in these communities had around ancestral spirits bringing supplies or providing um, for the community. So it's not tied to nothing. It's not just, you know, 
well, they saw a plane do it once. So now they've done it for years afterwards. It's um, it is tied to much longer standing belief systems around ancestral spirits. Mm. And it's not purely from your description. It's not this sort of purely tit for tat um, exchange of, oh, we do this thing in the expectation that every time we do it, we will get something. It's it's more complex as a ritual than that. Exactly. It's like any other, you know, complex religious ritual. Um very few religions expect instant reward, right? It's more about honoring these ancestral spirits um, that have brought rewards in the past or that continually provide for the community in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether that be a large box of World War II rations or just a particularly good harvest, it's just another way of integrating respect for the ancestral spirits. In the gift-giving tradition that you mentioned, is there a feeling of sort of obligatory reciprocity? Like, if I give you a gift today, at some point in the future, you have an obligation to give me a gift? So it's a little bit less like that and more about establishing, um, I won't quite say a rank, but Mm -hmm. a a standing in society. So the way that it's um, talked about in you know, most texts is as a big man, which is somebody who has a lot of resources and is able to provide quite a lot Mm -hmm. and a rubbish man, um, which is somebody who does not, (laughs) yeah, is not able to provide very much. Uh Uh, And I would love to hear from somebody actually from Melanesia about a better translation for that, because that is literally (laughs) most of what we're given um, in anthropological studies is big man and rubbish man. (laughs) rubbish man. Um, And there are a lot of theories that part of the reason these uh, cargo cults popped up so quickly and so strongly is because all at once, the whole community was made to feel like rubbish men, essentially, Mm. because nobody would be able to match that level of resource to provide to the community. If the U.S. Army, if the U.S. soldiers who bring these massive supply drops are such big men, to use the term you used, then there must be something virtuous about their behavior. There must be something good about all these things that they do. Exactly. And so that's why there is particular meaning attached to, you know, the symbols of the U.S. military uniform or, you know, a bayonet or, you know, one of these other things that is then ritualized as Mm -hmm. part of the religion. Um, The most common um, or the most widely known of these groups is called the the John Frum cult. Mm -hmm. And you know, when members of this religion speak about it, they say, you know, well, John Frum will bring us things. They're not actually talking about a guy named John Frum. They just know that that is a name that was attached to virtuous actions that brought a really prosperous moment. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it gets oversimplified and just repeated as a story that again brings it back to this kind of white God myth. Um, But there's a lot more behind it. I thought it was really interesting when you pointed out that what makes these traditions so compelling is how they fit into a long-standing legacy of tradition. And Moon Moon, to take it back to Gundam, because that is why we're here, <laughs> Moon Moon does the same thing. They have their sort of idiosyncratic religion, which the only hint we get as to what they actually believe comes from Rasara saying that they regulate their lives according to the rhythms of the moon's light. But they have also incorporated all of these other religious uh icons like Stonehenge and the temple that looks like a Mesoamerican uh, pyramid and the uh, the cross and crescent moon that Sarasa wears and what I spotted in this episode that looks like the uh, seven-branched sword out of Japanese legend. They're mixing a lot of different things together 
in their new religion. <laughs> Honestly, watching that, I was trying to decide how much of that was intentional and how much of that was just to convey visually like spooky, non-developed place. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But it was interesting to see. And I think, you know, kind of what I want to know post-episode, like I want to go back to Moon Moon and find out, did, you know, this awakening of their, what do you call it? I guess a, a giant mobile suit, a giant robot um, that they are not meant to touch or that is not meant to come alive. Did What does awakening that do to the culture? Do we now advance a little bit? Do we say we've taken something from this encounter and are evolving as a society, but still staying isolated? Or is the implication that they just go back to totally cutting off technology and not advancing? Yeah, I wondered about that too, because Rosara, at least, um, does not seem to have a problem with technology in and of itself. She seems quite excited when they get the linear subway working again. She's very excited that they get the mobile suit moving. She tells the other like people of Moon Moon not to be afraid of machines and that machines are not something they need to be scared of. So given that, like, do they leave the subway up and running? Do they, or does all of that get walked back? I do think they isolate, though, to the extent that they're able. Although now more people know where they are. Um, but given their location and its seeming lack of strategic significance, uh, they might be all right. Yeah, Tom did a research piece about the location and... It's very remote. It's, you know, they mentioned the asteroid field around it that mostly gets avoided. This is not a place people come ever for any reason. <laughs> so. Except that the war brought them there. And that brings us back to Melanesia and cargo cults, doesn't it? It does, yeah. If the only contact you have um, with another society is their wars, interesting that you would still want anything to do with that <laughs> society. Did you like these episodes? I did. I liked them a lot. Um, I had no idea what was going on in terms of larger plot, um, but they were pretty pretty self-contained. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed them. I was fascinated by the names. Loved Moon Moon. Loved Roll as a name. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just Roll. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I thought it, they moved so quickly. I was very surprised that there was that much depth of backstory and depth of history for the colony contained within two episodes um, that we kind of got this full long running history of having some sort of developed technology, rejecting it, being forgotten in space, having this whole trajectory of a culture pretty much encapsulated that quickly with that pacing of, you know, a B story going on as well. It was a lot. It was a lot in under an hour. Thank you very much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure and I feel like I learned a lot. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really glad we finally got a chance to talk to you on the podcast proper. It's a whole new world. <laughs> so excited to be here. <laughs> Any final messages to the listeners, Allie? Um, stay indoors, wear a mask. <laughs> uh, don't reduce cultures to uh, simplified interactions with them. Those are good messages. Next time on episode 3.14, Endracore, we cover Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, episode 16, and 
Running is a way of fighting too. Why is Elle so amazing? Prop comedy. A whole lot of creeps. No touching! Have you got a flag? Esprit de corps. Hostile work environment. And play it again, Lena. You will see the battlefield of new types. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music this season is New York City, instrumental, by Spinning Merkaba. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can also get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, on Facebook.com slash GundamPodcast, or by email at GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinions with the world by shouting, The existence of Moon Moon implies a Mars Mars. Let's never look for it. Out your window at passersby. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes to us from F.S. Scott in the MSB Discord. Thanks, F.S. Scott. Scott. Congratulations on your second one. And thank you for listening. All right. Talking about a revolution. All right, all right, all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, all right, all right. What the f*** was that? (laughs) Many people will use Moon Boon... Moon Boon. Truck backing up noises. Um, 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 there's a word for, like, making yourself big and cool, but it's not embiggen. Um. Um. uh, Aggrandize? Yes. Perfect. Beautiful. I love you. (laughs) Camille, or Camille. I keep wanting to call Judo Camille. When will that stop? When will I stop (laughs) calling judo camille and the double zeta the zeta uh probably when we get to the next series and you start calling the next protagonist judo okay got it yeah that line when judo is sprinting down the steps of the temple and he says open your skirt or it's translated as open your skirt i listened to the uh the japanese uh and he's he says maio hirake which is like literally open the front Mm -hmm. or like widen the front um and i i kind of wondered if he was actually talking about her skirt at all or if he was saying like out of my way i could also see that being an expression that works for kimono Mm. because when a kimono is uh tightly wrapped you couldn't really like book it in it and you actually walk very carefully so that it doesn't flap open but if you needed to run you could sort of like open the front of it up and, and go uh so I did wonder if maybe it came from an expression 
that dates from when people wore a kimono. That would make a lot of sense. That would, that's very interesting. Uh, that's total speculation on my part. I have nothing to back <laughs> that up. Where did Rue find that gun? Did she have that the whole time? That's a different very old sword. Okay. <laughs> Mixing up my swords, guys. Most of the stories have, quite frankly, been blown out of proportion, so just like probably the Hawaiians did not think Captain Cook was a literal god. Could you, could you, walk, <laughs> could you go back to um, the beginning of that sentence with blown out of proportion? There was some like clanking in the background. Sorry, Agatha is trying to <laughs> get into my lap really hard. She Aww. can't right now. <laughs> the clanking is me pushing my cat off my lap. Aww. Okay, no, get out of there. Kitty. Hopefully you have a good meow in the background just there. Um, okay, 